Well, if you have a Bible there uh, with you, if you want to turn to Mark's Gospel, chapter 3. We're finishing up chapter 3 of Mark here this morning. Our sermon text is Mark 3, verses 31 to 35. And this is our custom. Out of respect for the Word of God, I'll ask that you stand for the reading of the Scriptures today. Mark chapter 3, verses 31 35, give ear to the reading of God's holy word. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking around, at, looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Let's, let's pray and ask God's blessing upon his word to us today. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your scriptures, that you've given us a light uh, to our feet and a lamp to our path. And we ask today that you might be pleased to work in us by your spirit. And in so doing, give us eyes to see and ears to hear great things from your word. We know that we don't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. And we ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, some of you haven't been with us the whole time here in Mark or even in chapter 3. And just to catch you up a little bit, um, in in some ways, the the primary theme of, of the third chapter of Mark and some other parts as well has been growing opposition to Jesus, a growing opposition to Christ's public ministry and to his person. Uh, Back in verses 1 through 6 of the chapter that we're in, chapter 3, we saw the Pharisees kind of laying in wait, looking for a way to accuse Jesus of wrongdoing. And what did they see? They saw a man with a withered hand, and they saw Jesus healing that man on the Sabbath day of all days to be an occasion Uh, to accuse Christ of wrongdoing, of breaking, if you can imagine accusing the Son of God of breaking his own law. That's really what they were were doing. And it says in verse 6 that after Jesus exposed their hypocrisy for doing that, that they, quote, went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him or how to kill him. That's how much they hated Jesus. They hated their own Messiah. In verses 22 to 30, we see the scribes. And what do they do? They accuse Jesus of being possessed by, quote, verse 30, an unclean spirit, and thereby casting demons out, quote, by the prince of demons. And what does Jesus do there? He warns them that they were in danger of, of, of blaspheming against the Holy Spirit, the, the, the so-called unpardonable, unforgivable sin. Well, here in our text this morning, these last verses in chapter 3, what we're going to find is that Mark is kind of uh, bringing to a conclusion what he started talking about back in verses 20 and 21. He sort of mentioned something and then went away from it, and now he's coming back to it. And there in verse 20 to 21, Mark says this, Then he, Jesus, he went home, and the crowd gathered again. Another theme in Mark, these large crowds that were following after Jesus wherever he went. The crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him or to lay hold of him. For they were saying, he's out of his mind. Think about how big the crowd must have been to press in upon Christ so much 
that they couldn't even sit down to eat. Remember in another passage in, our, in, in this chapter, Jesus told the disciples to keep a getaway boat ready because he was worried the crowd might literally crush him or throng him. You know, they might press in. They were all trying to touch him to be healed. He was physically in danger. Well, you can imagine your own family and your friends, when that kind of a thing could happen, they'd be concerned. They'd want to, you know, rescue you from yourself, so to speak. Well, in our text, in the ESV, it says his family there, uh, in verses 20 to 21. The King James renders it as his friends. Now, what are we to make of this kind of ambiguity or difference uh, in translation? Um, well, the reason for that seeming ambiguity is that the Greek phrase there, uh, it actually is more, if I can translate it more literally, those near him, those beside or close to him. And, you know, this, this could have been a, a, an idiom or a common way of speaking in those days for family or for friends. It's kind of hard to tell exactly what the intended meaning is. Uh, it, it just It's those near him, which may have been family or, or friends. The fact that Jesus' family is mentioned particularly here in verses 31 to 35 is no getting around that. It's his mother and his, what, his brothers, his actual family members. The fact that Mark mentions them so specifically here in our text, I think, lends some credence to the idea that it was his family that Mark was referring to back in verses 20 to 21. Another option is, is to see it as Mark saying basically, uh, back, back in those verses, his friends, those close to him, tried to rescue him from himself. And then when that didn't work, what happened? You bring in the big guns. You bring in his family, his own mother and his brothers. If his friends can't do it, certainly his, close, his closest family might be able to get the job done or at least give it a try. You know, if Jesus won't listen to his friends, perhaps his blood relatives could get the job done. That's kind of the picture that might be going on here. But either way... His family here is trying to, to rescue him from himself. They cared for him. They were by no means to be considered hostile to Jesus. It's not the picture that Mark is painting. They weren't hostile to him as the way the scribes were in the previous passage or the Pharisees. So what are, what are they trying to do? They're trying to save Jesus from himself, aren't they? They're coming to bring him home to get him out of this mess that they thought he had uh, brought himself into. Now, this is kind of a family intervention, isn't it? You know, we have those in our day sometimes, or at least it's an attempt at one. But in our text, Jesus doesn't seem to pay them any attention, does he? They show up, they're outside, they're standing outside, they're sending people in, they're calling to him, and he just keeps right on trucking. He keeps right on teaching. So in our text, Jesus' mother, Mary, and his brothers show up outside of the house where he's ministering, where he's teaching, and they stand outside. They don't come in. They stand outside, and they send someone in for him. They send a message to him, and they even call to him from outside the house. You can imagine what this scene must have looked like. The fact that they remained outside, Mark tells us, at least twice in our text, that they remained outside, and also that they remained standing as well, rather than coming in or sitting down, um, I think that paints a picture for us of a of kind of a stubborn refusal, a resolve. They want no part of this. They're not going to come in and sit down and patiently wait for Jesus to take a breath and say, hey, Jesus, okay, now enough's enough, let's go. 
They're going to stand, you almost get the picture, they're standing outside with their arms folded across their chest, looking at their, they don't have watches back then, but looking at wherever they would look at in place of a watch, like, let's go, let's go. We've got, we got, we got a plane to catch. We've got a, a horse to catch, whatever the case may have been. They weren't going to put up with this, and they weren't going to leave till Jesus came with them, came home with them, got himself out of this mess. I don't know, have you ever been around somebody, you know, at the house or outside, and, and you know, the phone rings, and it rings, and it rings, and it rings, and you're like, oh, you know. And what are you, what are you tempted to say? Maybe, maybe they're talking to you, you're having a conversation. What do you usually say? Are you, are you going to get that? You know, you, you know your phone's ringing, right? Can you answer that and, and see, see maybe, maybe it's an important... That's an important call. Well, I think that's kind of the same reaction this crowd gave that was sitting around Jesus. He's teaching, doing whatever he's doing. His family sends someone in. You know, words getting passed up front to where Jesus was. And then they can hear his family calling to him from the outside. You know, imagine how loud it must have been for them to hear, for them, to hear them calling from the outside over this crowd. It, it probably seemed to the crowd like Jesus was either oblivious to what was going on outside or even possibly that he was being disrespectful to his own family, his own mother and his own younger brothers. So the crowd seated around Christ, what do they do? They do what anybody would do. They try to bring it to his attention. In verse 32, Mark says, And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. In case you haven't noticed, Jesus, you you don't hear that? You don't hear your mother outside saying your name? It's time to come home. Now, you know, think about that. It's never polite to ignore your family. It's never polite, right? Uh, Jesus, you know, was he going to ignore his own family when they brought this to his attention in case he wasn't listening? You know, they might have been thinking, surely Jesus would have to stop now. Surely Jesus would have to stop, leave off what he's doing, pick up his teaching or preaching another, another time, and take heed to his mother and his brother. What do they say? You know, blood is what? Blood is thicker than water. They had a right over him, at least they would have expected to, more than this crowd of strangers, even more than the twelve, the disciples who were sitting around him. But how does Jesus answer them? He, he doesn't. He finally stops and says something, right? He, he views it as a you know what have we what have we heard in in recent years uh, about a teachable moment? Well, this is a teachable moment, and Jesus, as his custom is, doesn't miss it. He could have just kept right on going, but he doesn't. He answers when the crowd says, hey, Jesus, you know, your, your family's outside and they're waiting. Uh, he answers them, and he says in verse 33, it says, He answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? Again, it, it can sound kind of rude. It sounds like Jesus is saying, Who? Never, never heard of them. Your mother and brothers are outside. I have no idea what you're talking about. Never heard of them. Don't know who that is. Uh, we'll just hope they go away. You know, on, on the surface, his words, think of it, this is his mother. You know, it's one thing for a distant relative or even a brother or sister to do something, but when your mom calls you, you answer, right? You know, it might seem like he's being callous or disrespectful, like he doesn't care for Mary or his brothers and thinks he's above them, doesn't care about them, but is Jesus here disrespecting his mother? Is he disrespecting his brothers? Worse yet, think about this. Is he breaking the fifth commandment? What's the fifth commandment? Exodus 20, verse 12. Honor your father and your mother. Not just your father, your mother. We're supposed to honor our mothers as well. Was Jesus breaking the fifth commandment? No, certainly not. 
So what's going on? He, he, he must not be deterred from the work that he was sent to accomplish. He was here for a reason. He was here to, to, to accomplish the work of our redemption from our sins. He can't allow himself to be swayed from doing the will of God, not even by his own family. And this isn't the only time in the Gospels where his own flesh and blood, his own family, sort of in a, in a friendly sense, but opposes him and seeks to deter him from the work he's doing. Even his own disciples at some point try to sway him from going to the cross. Simon Peter did such a thing, and Jesus couldn't be dissuaded. Well, Jesus' words here in our text, you know, who are my mother and my brothers, have to be understood back in the light of verse 21, the previous verses, where his family or his friends tried to seize him or lay hold of him because they thought that he might have been out of his mind, is what verse 21 says. Remember, they seemed to be convinced that Jesus was a danger to himself, and they were trying to help him. They thought they knew better. That's what's still going on here. This isn't Jesus, his mother and his brothers showing up and they just want to chat with him for a minute. That's not, they're still trying to take him home. They're still trying to lay hold of him and rescue him. They're still trying to intervene on his behalf. And they, they seem to be con- thinking that and convinced that Jesus was a danger to himself. And in some sense, they aren't wrong, are they? You know, Jesus doesn't stop what he's doing and say to them, this will just take a minute, guys. Let me go outside and clear this whole thing up. Hey, you get the wrong idea. I'm fine. You know, I'll be back next Tuesday. I'll, call, I'll write to you. I'll come visit. No, they're not wrong. I mean, they are wrong, but they're not mistaken that he's, in, a, in some sense, being a danger to himself. It's as if they could tell somehow already at this point in the Gospels that the path he was on led right to the cross. He was a danger to himself. And they knew it. Perhaps they even knew somehow word might have gotten out about that. The Pharisees talking to the Herodians, plotting his death. Word might have gotten around about that. Mark certainly knew about it after the fact when he wrote the gospel that we're reading even now. In a sense, his family had some idea this was not going to end well for Jesus, at least from a worldly point of view. But in trying to put a stop to Jesus' ministry on this earth, even if it was out of a concern for his well-being and his safety, Jesus' mother and his brothers were simply not being mindful of the will of God. That's why Jesus said what he said in verse 35 about whoever does the will of God, being his brother and sister and his mother. He's not repudiating his earthly family. He's rather refusing to allow anyone, even his own mother, even his own brothers, to prevent him from doing the will of God for our salvation. That Jesus didn't repudiate or turn his back on his family is clear from John chapter 19. Jesus doesn't disown his family. It almost sounds like it's what he's doing here. John 19, verses 25 to 27, we read the following. Uh, But standing by the cross of Jesus, this is during the crucifixion, while he's nailed to the cross, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, that's John, standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to to the disciple, Behold your mother. 
And John adds, from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. John got the point. John got the message loud and clear. Even while dying on the cross for our sins, Jesus took the time to see to it that his own mother was taken care of by John, the disciple whom Jesus loved. John took Mary into his home from that day forward. So Jesus wasn't disowning his mother. He wasn't disrespecting his mother. He wasn't dishonoring his mother at all. But there are priorities, and our salvation depended upon it. In 1 Timothy 5.8, the Apostle Paul has some pretty strong words about just how important our family should be to a believer in Christ. There he writes these words that should serve, I think, as a stern rebuke to many men in our day, many men who profess the name of Christ. Paul writes there, 1 Timothy 5, 8, But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. He has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. A believing man who does not do whatever he can to lawfully provide for his family, for their needs, not for all their wants, Paul says, has denied the faith. Think about that. That's serious language. It's not you know, his actions or his inaction. Paul says is a contradiction of the Christian faith. It cuts right across the basic teachings of the faith. And in that way, Paul says that such a man is also, quote, worse than an unbeliever. Pretty harsh harsh words. Even, in other words, what he's saying is even a pagan or an atheist knows somehow that you're supposed to take care of your own family. And if they know it, a believer has even less excuse. People who have the scriptures, who know better, because God has revealed it to them, not just through conscience like the unbeliever and the atheist, but by his own word. We should know better, Paul says. We have no excuse. So here in our text, Jesus is not advocating or commanding that his followers sever all family ties. He's not saying that we should abandon or turn our backs on all of our God-given obligations to our families. Far from it. But Jesus elsewhere does tell us that we have to be prepared to pay a price at times for following him, doesn't he? It's a common theme in his teachings in the Gospels. Even if that price means your family members turning their backs on you. And make no mistake, that still happens today. You may not, by God's grace, you may not know what that's like, but there are many around the world, even in our country, that know exactly what that pain is like. They follow Christ, their family wants nothing to do with them any longer. Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 to 39, Jesus says these words. He says, Do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Those tough words. You're supposed to love your family. You're supposed to love your mother and your father. You're supposed to love your sons and your daughters more than your own life, right? 
You're supposed to love your own family more than life itself, but there's one love that's supposed to take priority over even that. You're to love the Lord your God more than anything. You're to love Christ more than even your own family members if that choice should present itself, God forbid, to you. Jesus comes first. He takes priority over even our own families. Again, if you're following Christ, you should be taking care of your family. He's not commanding us to to turn our backs on our families. He is saying, I come first. Jesus comes first. Well, now we're going to look at what Jesus says in our text in verses 34 to 35 about the defining characteristics of Jesus' true family. The family that he talks about here to this crowd. In verse 33, he says, Who are my mother and my brothers? Well, that's a loaded question, isn't it? And he wants them to think about it. And he wants you and I, even here today, to think about that. Who is his mother and who are his brothers? You and I are supposed to take this question to heart. It's not a hypothetical. You and I have to ask ourselves at this point, looking at the scripture, am I the mother or brother of Jesus? That's the question you have to ask yourself. Are you the mother or brother of Jesus? Are you in the family of God? And how do you know if you are or if you're not? What are the defining characteristics of his true family, of his spiritual family? First thing to say is we should notice that Jesus clearly implies here that not everybody is. He doesn't say, hey, guess what? I know they're my mom and my brothers, but everybody is. That's not what he says at all. He clearly implies that there are some who are and some who are not. No one is naturally in Christ's family. Not by blood relation, not by family heritage, not by having a godly family heritage. We don't get in by proxy. We don't get in by osmosis. We don't get in holding someone else's coattails. There's nothing, certainly there's, a, there's nothing wrong with having a godly family line, with having uh, believing parents and grandparents. It's a blessing from the Lord. Thank God for it. But everyone has to come to Christ by faith for him or herself. We don't get to stand before the Lord one day and say, well, my grandparents, my parents, we have to, we have to look God, so to speak, in the eye and, and believe in Christ for ourselves and come to him to have life in his name. How do you know if you're in the family of God? How do you know if you can rightly call yourself the brother or sister of Christ? could be no more important question here this morning that you could ask yourself and have the answer to. Verse 35, Jesus kind of tell, gives us the answer, doesn't he? Verse 35, he tells us that the defining characteristic of those who are truly his family members, it's in doing the will of God. So you have to ask yourself, secondly, are you doing the will of God? Now you and I have to be very careful at this point. Sometimes Jesus says things in the Gospels that can make us very uncomfortable. Sometimes they're easily misunderstood. Jesus is not saying uh, that doing the will of God somehow is a qualification or is a prerequisite for being in his family, for being a member of the family of Christ. It's not what he's saying. He doesn't say, do God's will and then I will let you become part of the family. Doing God's will does not qualify you for membership in God's family. You cannot earn your place at his table. But family resemblance is evidence that you really are a part of the family. 
Just like it is naturally, so it is spiritually as well. And a lack of family resemblance is evidence that you're not in the family. That's what he's saying here. can't tell by the outward appearance, but you can tell by doing or not doing the will of God. 1 John 3.10, the Apostle John, that same Apostle that took Mary in, writes this. 1 John 3.10, By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. First John has a lot of sayings like that, where you can—it's—it's it's a book written about assurance. It's not—it's not a book written to to shake your faith. It's a book that you can look at to read and say, "How do I know if I'm a believer?" And John gives a number of tests, so to speak, a number of evidences that we're to look for, and two of them are mentioned in this text. Practicing righteousness and loving your brother. Loving your fellow Christians. Those, if, if you love your brother in Christ, even though you may not have known him for very long, and he wasn't part of your natural born family, that's evidence of the family tie, of a spiritual family tie worked by the Holy Spirit. If you don't practice, to use that phrase, if you don't practice righteousness, John says you're not a child of God, but you're a child of someone else entirely. One thing to say, you know, if you don't practice righteousness and you're not a child of God, he goes further than that, doesn't he? He says, child of the devil. Pretty harsh words. Another way of putting this is to say that your sanctification, your sanctification, which is the work of God's free grace in your life, if you're a believer in Christ, that sanctification is the evidence of your justification. It's the evidence of your adoption in Christ. That's really what he's saying here. And John is not saying that sinless perfection is the mark of all true family members of Christ. If that's the case, Christ would be an only child. He would not have any spiritual brothers and sisters as he does now. John is not saying sinless perfection is the, is the mark. Otherwise, we would never make that mark. 1 John 1.8, he already said in the same letter, If we say we have no sin, we do what? We deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. You have to take the whole letter for what it says, not isolate one verse and twist it out of context. Practicing righteousness doesn't mean that we never sin. If you're a believer, you know you sin. There's a reason that we pray a prayer of adoration and and confession every Sunday. There's a reason the Lord's Prayer teaches us to forgive. We say what? Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Jesus tells us right in the Lord's Prayer... We're going to need forgiveness on a regular basis. But there's a difference between needing forgiveness and not practicing righteousness at all, not obeying the commands of Christ at all. So do you do the will of God? Are you seeking to do the will of God as you find it revealed in his word? Are you following Christ even if imperfectly so? If you are, then take heart and be encouraged that there is evidence there of the genuineness of your faith, God-given faith in Christ. And more than that, it shows that you have the right, the right to the title child of God, even the brother or sister of Christ. You can say that on the authority of Scripture itself. Think about that. Jesus is telling us something remarkable here. Sinners can be adopted into his own family. Not just pardoned, not just forgiven, adopted. Forgiveness is one thing, and it's necessary for us. 
But to be adopted into his family is a, it's an extent, it's, it's mind-boggling to think that God takes sinners into his own family, adopted them in Jesus Christ. John chapter 1, verses 11 to 13 puts it this way. He came to his own, Jesus did. He came to his own and his own, did not, his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. The right. Not by your own doing, not by your own merits or earning anything, but believing in his name, receiving Christ, gives us the right to become children of God. He says, who were born not of blood, not of family ties, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Who puts you in God's family? God does, by his grace, and only God does. So this morning I have to ask, have you received Christ by believing in his name? If you have, by the grace of God, then you have the right to the title child of God and brother and sister of Christ. Can you even imagine what it must have felt like? Think, put yourself in that room. It's hard to do that. I know we're 2,000 years difference in different place and time and, and culture. Imagine what it must have felt like for his disciples, the 12, and the rest of those people sitting around him in that house when they say, hey, your mom and brothers are outside. And he says, who are my mother and my brothers? And then he looks around at them, Luke Mark says. He looks around about upon those sitting around him. Another one of the Gospels says he kind of points, kind of waves his hand around at them and says, here are my mother and my brothers. Imagine hearing Jesus himself say those words to you if you had been sitting in that room. What would that have been? What, what might that have sounded like to your ears? Well, it's the same thing he says now. If you're a believer in him, if you've received him and believed upon his name and are doing the will of God from the heart by the work of his spirit, he says, here are my mother and my brothers. There's no greater title on this earth than you could ever receive than that. If you're a believer, think about this. Jesus himself is not ashamed to call you his brother. The writer of the book of Hebrews tells us that. It quotes, we don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews, but he, he quotes and, and interprets Psalm 22, verse 22. And he says this, For it was fitting that he, Christ, it was fitting for that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, and he quotes Psalm 22, verse 22, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. The writer to Hebrews says, Look at Psalm 22. What is Psalm 22? You might, might be very familiar with it. It's the Psalm of the Cross. It's a psalm that paints a very dramatic and very vivid picture of a crucifixion. The first, in first person, speaking. Uh, you know, and Jesus quotes Psalm 22.1 from the cross, doesn't he? What does the first verse of Psalm 22 say? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's the psalm of the cross, and in the psalm of the cross, you have the Messiah years and years and years and years, a thousand years before the crucifixion, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. 
and in the midst of the congregation I will sing your praise. The writer to the Hebrews is, is, is exactly right when he, when he interprets it that way. Jesus, even on the cross, was not ashamed to call us his brothers. And even the resurrection is hinted at and prophesied in that verse, isn't it? I will tell, future tense, I will tell of your name to my brothers, and in the midst of the congregation I will sing your praise. He's going to rise again, even in Psalm 22. And he dies and rises from the dead for his brothers, for his adopted family in Christ. Psalm 22, again, it's a psalm of the cross. And of all the places in Scripture, it's in that great psalm of the cross where we're told that Jesus, despite the shame of the cross, was not ashamed to call us his brothers. And the proof of that is in the cross itself. Let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we give you praise that we can call upon you as our Heavenly Father. And we can only do that because of the work of your Son, whom you sent to die in the place of, of wicked men like us. You, died, you sent him to die in our place, that we might be forgiven, and you sent him to live the life that we have not lived, the life of perfect sinlessness, of always doing your will in all things that we have not done, that Christ did that also in our place. He always lived to do your will. He always fulfilled your commandments. He always did what was well-pleasing in your sight. We have not, but he has. And we thank you that you give us his righteousness. You account that to us by faith as well that you forgive us, you accept us as righteous in, in your sight only because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ, your Son, imputed to us by faith. And we thank you that on top of all that, as great as that is, as hard as even that is for us to comprehend, that you also adopt us in him. That you, you call us sons and daughters because we're sons and daughters of, of Almighty God in Christ and because of his work on our behalf. We thank you that Jesus himself, the Lord of lords, the King of kings, the Lord of glory, seated at your right hand, calls sinners such as us his brothers and his mother and his sisters. And we ask that if anybody here this morning does not yet know you, has not yet received Christ and believed on his name, that you would open their eyes even today, that they might believe in him, have life in his name, and have the right to the title child of God. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.